Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you for joining us today as we prepare to mark the anniversary of one of the most tragic events in U.S. history and which helped change the course of occupational safety and health for generations to come. On March 25, 1911, at 4.40 p.m., a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in the Ash Building in New York City. Though the fire lasted less than 30 minutes, 146 workers lost their lives, most of them women and girls, some as young as 14 years old. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire remains one of the deadliest workplace incidents in U.S. history and helped bring to light the conditions that so many workers of the time were faced with. Joining me today to talk about the events of that day, what led to it, and its aftermath, I'd like to welcome David Vondrely. David is a Washington Post columnist and author of Triangle, The Fire That Changed America. David, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Scott. So I thought we could uh, start our conversation today by taking listeners back to, to 1911, as, as you do so well in your book, and you know, really paint a picture of what life was like for workers at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and workers in general, you know, who they were and what their experience was like during that time. Sure. You know, this was really an important transitional period in the Industrial Revolution. It was in New York City, um, a time of tremendous uh, immigration to the United States. Several crises in Europe were uh, conspiring to drive uh, millions of immigrants our direction from Italy, from Eastern Europe. Um, and they were arriving just at the time that New York had figured out how the island of Manhattan could become uh, a factory center. And how did they do that? By building skyscrapers. The combination of um, steel girder construction and um, the invention of the passenger elevator, safety elevator, combined to allow you know, high-rise buildings for the first time to be built on the island of Manhattan. And between the year 1900 and the year 1910, an average of three skyscrapers, 10 stories or higher, were topping out every two weeks in New York. It's just a forest of skyscrapers going up. They weren't even sure what to do with these buildings until somebody figured out you could put factories in them. And so all of a sudden, there were hundreds of thousands of workers living in crowded tenements and working in uh, you know, busy factories high above the streets of New York. It was a transformation in so many ways. And what, as so often happens, you know, change comes first and the laws and the safety and all the rest of it come afterward. And so around 1910, 1911, the authorities of New York were just waking up to the fact that this was extremely dangerous, uh, that if there were a disaster in one of these factories, 10 stories, nine stories, eight stories above the street, they might not be able to respond. You know, New York had the greatest fire department in the world, but they didn't have a ladder that would go more than six stories high. 
and they their fire hoses weren't strong enough to blast water up 10 stories high. So unfortunately, they didn't wake up to the problem quickly enough because, uh, on as you said, March 25th, 1911, a Saturday, the first beautiful day of the year in New York, this flash fire broke out in a garment factory. There were hundreds of garment factories in the high-rises of New York employing uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of workers. And exactly as predicted, the fire department was not able to respond quickly enough. You mentioned, you know, so many workers working in those garment factories. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the working conditions that 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 those those workers were were faced with, both at you know the the Triangle Factory and elsewhere. Yeah, um, it's it's this really fascinated me when I studied it because uh, the Triangle Factory was exactly what I I imagine you and certainly I picture when we hear the word sweatshop. There were workers elbow to elbow at long tables, hunched over sewing machines, you know, busy for nine hours a day, 10 hours a day in the, in the high season. What I learned was that the workers at the time did not think of the triangle as a sweatshop. The term sweatshop to them meant uh, little smaller operations tucked away in tenement buildings, no light, no electricity, pedal-powered sewing machines. And the idea of sweating workers was that you work them longer and longer for less and less pay. And if they didn't like it, you know, and 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 left, you just hired the next person off the ship because the immigrants were coming in at such a high rate. And and workers couldn't organize against those shops. They couldn't strike because uh, the the proprietor of the shop could just close up, move into another tenement overnight, and the workers wouldn't even be able to find out where they went. So that's what is the sweatshop system meant to a worker of 1911. By contrast, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was one of the largest clothing makers in the world. They employed, you know, over 500 people. They were in this, you know, very new uh, high-rise building. It had tall windows, lots of ventilation. The machines were powered by motors. They had plenty of light. And guess what? Because the owners had so much invested in this plant, they couldn't pack it up and move overnight. And so this allowed the workers to organize into unions. And the International Ladies Garment Workers Union was formed. And uh, sure enough, there was a huge strike in the uh, shirtwaist industry. The, a shirtwaist, by the way, is, is what we would now call a blouse. There was a, a, a strike in, in the shirtwaist industry. Probably forty or 50,000 workers went out on strike. Almost all of them were women. This had never happened in American history before, that there was a, a strike primarily of, of women. The progressive women of New York, wealthy uh, members of the progressive movement, people fighting for the right to vote for women, they were charmed by this uprising uh, of, of woman power. 
and they took the side of the strikers. So you had uh, people like uh, Anne Morgan, who was the daughter of the most powerful financier in the world, J.P. Morgan, out uh, raising money for strikers. It, it was scandalous. Front page news. It went on through the whole uh, autumn and winter of 1909-1910 and finally was uh, settled. The Triangle Factory was the center of opposition to the strike. And so, intriguingly, the Triangle Factory was already uh, this um, hated place among the left-wingers of New York, even before this fire happened. Which, uh, which leads us then back to March 25th, 1911. I wonder if we kind of talk through the timeline of that day, you know, the, the conditions, the circumstances that led to the fire and what took place during the fire that resulted in the massive loss of life. Sure. So the Triangle Factory occupied three floors of a 10-story building, the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors. Uh, at the corner of uh, Green Street and Washington Place, if you have listeners who know New York, this is just off uh, Washington Square. It's the heart of New York University now. This was a Saturday, so they had uh, shorter hours than they normally had. On the eighth floor of the factory, this was where the buttons were sewn on. It was where some other finish work was done, but mostly the most important function on the eighth floor was the cutting. And uh, cutting in a garment factory was an incredibly high-skilled job. The cutters would pile up, uh, you know, dozens of layers of cloth and put their patterns down and use these long, very sharp knives to cut around the patterns so they could cut multiple pieces at a time. And obviously, if you think about it, the skill of a cutter is in getting those pattern pieces as close together as possible. So because you add up the waste and it it uh, costs a lot of money when you're making tens of thousands of blouses every week. But no matter how skilled they were, there was still waste. And one of the innovations of the Triangle Factory was they built cutting tables and enclosed the area under them in a way that the cutters could just sweep the waste fabric into these bins under the tables. And every now and then, uh, the ragman would come. They made paper out of uh, scrap cotton in those days all this stuff away. Well, it had been quite some time, a number of weeks since the ragman had been there. These bins were nearly full of cotton scraps and tissue paper that was used to separate the layers of fabric. One of the only things that's more flammable than tissue paper is cotton. You might know that they stuff cotton into cannons to you know, make them more explosive. Because the cutters were so skilled, if you tried to fire one or discipline one, he could just walk out into the next building and probably get a raise. You know, they had no trouble finding jobs and they were impossible to discipline. They were like a force unto themselves. 
So there were signs around the factory. They knew they had a, a fire hazard. No smoking signs all around the factory in English, in Yiddish, in Italian. These were the three main languages of the garment industry. But cutters didn't really pay attention to that. So it was uh, 4.45, the day was ending, and almost certainly one of the cutters in the corner of the eighth floor, uh, after knocking off, lit a cigarette. And either the ash from the cigarette or the match went into the bin under his table, and it went up in a second. They tried to fight the fire using uh, cans of uh, water that were kept in corners, you know, around the factory for that purpose. It was not unheard of that fires would break out and they would put them out uh, with these buckets. But within a minute or so, the foreman realized that he was not going to be able to put this fire out and people ran for the exits. There was a phone on the eighth floor that connected to the 10th floor. That's where the office uh, was. That's where the salesmen hung out. That's where the owners had their offices. Uh, they did the shipping, packing and shipping up there. A quick thinking employee on the eighth floor called the switchboard on the 10th floor to alert them that there was a fire. And in that way, the folks on the 10th floor were warned and able to uh, run for the exits. Unfortunately, that switchboard operator, uh, once she heard the word fire, jumped up, dropped her phone, and ran for her life. And so there was no way to notify the ninth floor. Uh, the ninth floor was the main sewing plant. Uh, there were 10 long tables uh, that went all the way up to the windows over Washington Place and ran about three quarters of the length of the uh, of the room. And uh, the workers were finishing up their sewing there. There were about uh, probably between 200 and 300 people on that floor. They were mostly young girls. Some of them were uh, young men in their teens and early 20s. And they were exactly like young people in their teens and 20s today. They were thinking about meeting their girlfriends or boyfriends after work. Uh, they had plans to go out dancing or to the this newfangled technology called movies. One of them remembered that uh, a girl was singing a song from a hit show on Broadway uh, called Every Little Movement Has a Meaning of Its Own. As they stood up, uh, the bell, bell rang signaling the end of the day. They stood up and started filing up these narrow aisles between the, the, the sewing machines, tables. And all of a sudden, outside the windows, they saw the flames boiling up from the eighth floor. There were two exits, uh, three, I guess. In the back of the building, there was a fire escape, one of these flimsy sort of West Side Story fire escapes. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere because there was no access from that air passage to the street. But 
people ran to that fire escape and crowded out onto it. Uh, there were already people from the eighth floor below working their way down the fire escape. The thing became overcrowded and it tore away from the wall and it dumped about 25 people to their deaths at the bottom of the air shaft. There were two freight elevators and a stairway in the um, uh, northeast corner of the floor. This seemed like it might be an escape path, but that's the corner of the building where the fire had started on the eighth floor. So the building was, uh, there was, you couldn't go down because the fire, that's where the fire was. And they didn't realize because they'd never gone to the roof that they could go up those stairs to the roof. It was very late in the tragedy that uh, one of the heroes of the fire, a shipping clerk named Eddie Markowitz, thought to run down the stairs and encourage people to follow him up to the roof. By then, the flames were coming in uh, through that uh, doorway, and you had to be a very brave person to run through the fire and follow him to the roof. But some people did escape from the ninth floor in that way. In the opposite corner, there were two passenger elevators, and um, these were verboten to the workers in the building. These were just for the people in the office upstairs. So they had no experience with using these elevators. But uh, fortunately, I mentioned heroes. The real heroes were the elevator operators in these two little passenger cars. They kept running over and over again, up past the, the boiling flames of the eighth floor to the ninth floor to rescue as many people as they could. Uh, but within a fairly short time, that became impossible. The workers who were crowded at, the eleva at those elevators realized that they would not be coming back again, and they began hurling themselves, trying to jump onto the top of the elevators as they went down. Uh, some of them successfully rode the elevators down, but others died uh, in the elevator shaft. There was a doorway, there was a staircase next to those elevators, but that door was locked. It was the regular practice of the Triangle Factory to lock that door at closing time so that all the workers had to leave through the other staircase and they would station a security guard there who would search their handbags. Uh, the owners were worried about workers stealing uh, blouses or, or fabric. At the eventual trial of the owners, they, they admitted that they'd never had a serious theft problem. They'd never lost more than 10 or $15 a year uh, to theft, but they were obviously worried about it. And because that door was locked, the passenger elevators were blocked by flame. Flame had closed off the other exit and the fire escape had collapsed. That left only the windows uh, of the factory. They stood in those windows. Then they started climbing out onto the cornice of the building, the ledge that towered over the street, watching hoping for, you know, to somehow be rescued by 
the fire department that was arriving. They watched the tallest ladder in the fire department arsenal being raised, and it stopped at the sixth floor. Some people began jumping, trying to catch it. Of course, they failed. At one point, the fire department brought out a uh, what they called a life net, you know, something that people could jump into. But the fall was so great that uh, the people who tried to jump into it tore through the net and died on the sidewalk. Eventually, people began jumping because the heat was simply too unbearable. And then finally, people were being driven by the flames out the windows. Ultimately, 146 people died. Most of them, 123 of the 146 were women and girls. Uh, in some cases, whole families wiped out, a mother and, and two daughters. What made this so striking was that, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, this was the first nice day of 1911. It had been a really hard winter. They'd had some a couple of terrible blizzards, and this was a warm, fine spring day. And if you've ever been in New York, when that happens, the streets fill, the parks fill, and Washington Square was absolutely packed with people enjoying the day. And they heard the fire bells ringing, they saw the smoke rising, and they rushed to see what was happening. And so the streets were packed with people watching this tragedy play out before their eyes. It was the, for those of us who lived through and remember 9-11, it was the it was the 9/11 of the pre-television age. Um, it wasn't the whole world watching, but it felt like it because there were thousands of people who saw this tragedy, and they watched uh, as as at least 54 people jumped or fell to their deaths on the sidewalks right in front of them. Uh, the city of New York was stunned by this. And uh, people immediately began asking, how could this happen? Absolutely horrific. I, can't, I mean, you can't, can't even imagine. And on that note, you know, the how could this happen? I know uh, in the aftermath of the fire, there were, you know, a lot, a lot of those questions. And, you know, the fire had wide ranging impacts in terms of improving workplace safety and health, uh, the labor movement and in and in many other ways. So I thought maybe we could talk about, you know, the aftermath of the fire, you know, and how it changed America. Well, as I said, this there'd been this strike, and the triangle was already well known. And people, at least people in the know, felt like they knew that something was wrong and that conditions weren't entirely safe and, and fair and humane. And now it was as if the 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 righteousness of the of the cause had been written in in the blood of these workers you know on the on the pavement there were people who had been in this in the strike who died in the fire and so not just the labor movement but the the whole city uh was uh scandalized uh horrified 
But here's the thing, Scott. In 1911, an average of 200 workers per day died on the job in the United States. They died when their the mines they were working in collapsed. They drowned when their ships sank. They were maimed or killed in railroad accidents. They fell into burning pots of steel. Uh, they were torn apart by unprotected machinery. It was really dangerous to go to work. And yet these were called, referred to as acts of God, as if there were no way that workplaces could be made safe. Well, uh, interestingly, so it, this, this, this feeling that something had to be done. Uh, well, so the question I asked myself was, why was this tragedy so transformative? And it, it turned out it was because uh, the, the political machinery of New York, a, a Democratic Party machine called Tammany Hall, was in a period of tremendous upheaval themselves. Tammany Hall had been built by the great German and Irish immigrations of the mid 19th century. But those immigrants, you know, were uh, assimilating into society. They were moving up. They didn't need uh, a politi political machine as much as they did when they arrived. And these new immigrants, Italians and Jews primarily, had no natural loyalty to Tammany Hall. Tammany needed to do something to appeal to these new immigrants and, and get on their side if they were going to survive. The boss of Tammany Hall, Charlie Murphy, Silent Charlie, looked at this tragedy and realized that this could be the thing. This was how Tammany Hall could show it was on the side of the new immigrants. And he happened to have control at the time of the state legislature. He took two of his brightest young men, a state senator named Robert Wagner and a state uh, assemblyman named Al Smith. To people who know American history, these are two very famous names. They were young, uh, young men on the rise. He had the legislature create the most powerful commission in the history of New York state government. What they recommended was going to be passed and could not be changed, according to the, the legislation setting up this factory investigating committee. And the commission, over the next three years, recommended over 50 significant workplace safety and worker rights pieces of legislation, everything from uh, mandatory sprinkler systems in high-rise buildings to mandatory fire drills for workers above a certain height of the building. The, you know, the little maps that you see in every high-rise showing how you get out. That was a legacy of the factory investigating committee. But they went beyond that to uh, limit the number of hours in a work week. This is this was the first step toward the 40-hour work week. Uh, they even 
They even considered uh, minimum wage laws, which was uh, considered, you know, virtually communism uh, at that time. So this was the most progressive set of workplace safety and worker rights legislation America had ever seen. It was immensely popular. Tammany Hall became stronger than it had ever been. Bob Wagner went to the United States Senate uh, on his popularity. Al Smith became governor of New York, was elected, uh, I think, four times, and was nominated to run for president of the United States. That's the highest any Tammany Hall man had ever gone or ever would go. It worked astonishingly. And Al Smith didn't make it to the White House, but four years later, a guy named Franklin Roosevelt did, a Democrat from New York, boosted by Tammany Hall. Franklin Roosevelt, as you know, transformed America with the New Deal. Well, who wrote the New Deal? Bob Wagner. He was the author of the Wagner Act, to the famous uh, uh, right to uh, union organizing. He was the author of the Social Security Act and other. He, he wrote the New Deal and uh, and pushed it th- through Congress. One more person I'll mention: Francis Perkins was a young social worker in New York who happened to be on that Saturday afternoon in March, uh, going to have tea with a friend who had a, a townhouse on Washington Square. And she was among that crowd that ran to see what was happening. And she watched those young men and women falling to their deaths on the street. And she became the driving force of the factory investigating committee. She led the uh, powerful business owners and real estate figures and others who had been appointed to the commission. She took them through the, you know, the factories and canneries and and sawmills and uh, you know, all these dangerous industrial uh, settings around New York. And she made sure they saw what the workers uh, were actually dealing with. She became uh, the first woman ever to serve in a cabinet appointed by Franklin Roosevelt to create the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor building is named for her. If you go to Washington, you'll see it's the Francis Perkins uh, building. On the 50th anniversary of the fire, she uh, attended a ceremony at the site. The building's still there. She said, that the tragedy of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire was the beginning of the New Deal. And the New Deal transformed uh, the American relationship of government and and uh, the people in so many ways. And so in a sense, in that sense, I genuinely do mean it when I call my book The Fire That Changed America, because you can draw that direct line from the deaths of those workers to the world we live in today.
Absolutely. Uh, one, one other result of this I want to know uh, in October of 1911 saw the founding of the United Association of Casualty Inspectors, which today is the American Society of Safety Professionals. And then uh, in 1970, we had uh, the signing of the OSH Act and you know, great strides have been made in occupational safety and health in the years since. But as as we see uh, with, you know, uh, OSHA data and data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics yearly, that there, uh, there's still much work left to do. There's always work to be done. You should be very proud of what your organization and the people who do your work have accomplished. I mentioned that uh, 200 people on average died every day on the job in 1911. Proportionally, obviously, uh, that would be a much higher number if it were still true, but it's not true. The The number now is about 1 30th of that. So still too high, but dramatically safer. Uh, unfortunately, much of our uh, manufacturing has been exported to countries where conditions are very much like the ones that uh, existed at the Triangle in 1911. There have been terrible uh, factory fires uh, over the past 20 years. And so um, we learn again and again the lessons of the Triangle Fire. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on, David. This is an event that should never be forgotten. Now, thank you for for your book and and keeping the memory of the Triangle Fire alive and let it serve as a reminder of the importance of providing a safe and healthful workplace for workers everywhere. So thank you so much again. Well, amen, Scott, to that. And thank you for your interest. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can, also, you can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.